Chapter 16, Part 2 of Moonfleet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evans. Moonfleet by J. Mead Faulkner. Chapter 16, Part 1. The Jewel. All that glisters is not gold. Shakespeare. There was the turnkey's belt lying on the floor, with the keys and manacles fixed to it, just as it had failed and come off him at the fatal moment. Elzevir picked it up, tried the keys till he found the right one, and unlocked the door of the well-house. "'There are other locks to open before we get out,' I said. "'Aye,' he answered, "'but it is more than our life is worth to be seen with these keys, so send them down the well after their master.' I took them back and flung them, belt and keys and handcuffs, clanking down against the sides into the blackness and the hidden water at the bottom. Then we took pail and hammer, brush and ropes, and turned our backs upon that hateful place. There was the little court to cross before we came to the door banquet hall. They were locked, but we knocked until a guard opened them. As for the plasterer men, who had passed an hour before, and only asked, "'Where's Ephraim?' meaning the turnkey. "'He is stopping behind in the well-house,' Elzevir said. "'And so we passed on through the hall, "'where the prisoners were making what breakfast they might of odds and ends, "'with a savoury smell of cooking and a great patter of French. "'At the outer gate was another guard to be passed, "'but they opened for us without question, "'cursing Ephraim under their breath "'that he did not take the pains to let his own men out. "'Then the wicket of the great gate swung to behind us, "'and we went into the open again.' As soon as we were out of sight, we quickened our pace, and the weather having much bettered and a fresh breeze springing up, we came back to the bugle about ten in the forenoon. I believe that neither of us spoke a word during that walk, and though Elzevir had not yet seen the diamond, he never even took the pains to draw it out of the little parchment bag in which it still lay hid in his pocket. Yet if I did not speak, I thought, and my thoughts were sad enough. For here were we a second time, flying for our lives, and if we had not the full guilt of blood upon our hands, yet blood was surely there. So this flight was very bitter to me, because the scene of death of which I had been witness this morning seemed to take me farther still away from all my old happy life, and to stand like another dreadful obstacle between Grace and me. In the family Bible lying on the table in my aunt's best parlour was a picture of Cain, which I had often looked at with fear on wet Sunday afternoons. It showed Cain striding along in the midst of a boundless desert, with his sons and their wives striding behind him, and their little children carrying slung on poles. There was a quick swinging motion in the bodies of all, as though they must needs always stride as fast as they might, and never rest, and their fists were set hard and thin with eternal wandering and disquiet. But the thinnest and most restless-looking and hardest face was Cain's, and on the middle of his forehead there was a dark spot, which God had set to show that none might touch him, because he was the first murderer, and cursed for ever. This has always been to me a dreadful picture, though I could not choose but look at it, and was sorry indeed for Cain, for all he was so wicked, because it seemed so hard to have to wander up and down the world all his life long, and never be able to come to moorings. And yet this very thing had come upon me now, for here we were with the blood of two men on our hands, 
wanderers on the face of the earth, who durst never go home. And if the mark of Cain was not on my forehead already, I felt it might come out there at any minute. When we reached the bugle, I went upstairs and flung myself upon the bed to try to rest a little and think. But Elzevir shut himself in with the landlord, and I could hear them talking earnestly in the room under me. After a while he came up and said that he had considered with the landlord how he could best get away, telling him that we must be off at once, but letting him suppose that we were eager to leave the place because some of the excise had got wind of our whereabouts. He had said nothing to our host about the turnkey, wishing as few persons as possible to know of that matter, but doubted not that we should by all means hasten our departure from the island, for that as soon as the turnkey was missed, inquiry would certainly be made for the plasterers with whom he was last seen. Yet in this thing at least fortune favoured us, for there was now lying at cows and ready to sail that night a Dutch cooper that had run a cargo of Hollands on the other side of the island, and was going back to Scheveningen freighted with wool. Our landlord knew the Dutch captain well, having often done business for him, and so could give us letters of recommendation which would ensure us a passage to the low countries. Thus in the afternoon we were on the road, making our way from Newport to Cowes in a new disguise, for which we had changed our clothes again, and now wore the common sailor dress of blue. The clouds had returned after the rain, and the afternoon was wet and worse than the morning, so I shall not say anything of another weary and silent walk. We arrived on Cow's Quay by eight in the evening, and found the cooper ready to make sail, and waiting only for the tide to set out. Her name was the Gudendrum, and she was a little larger than a Bonaventure, but had a smaller crew, and was not near so well found. Elzevir exchanged a few words with the captain, and gave him the landlord's letter, and after that they let us come on board, but said nothing to us. We judged that we were best out of the way, so went below, and finding her laden deep, and even the cabin full of bales of wool, flung ourselves on them to rest. I was so tired and heavy with sleep, that my eyes closed almost before I was lain down, and never opened till the next morning was well advanced. I shall not say anything about our voyage, or how we came safe to Scheveningen, because it had little to do with our story. Elzevir had settled that we should go to Holland, not only because the cooper was waiting to sail thither, for we might doubtless have found other boats before long to take us elsewhere, but also because he had learned at Newport that the Hague was the first market in the world for diamonds. This he told me after we were safe housed in a little tavern in the town, which was frequented by seamen, but those of the better class, such as mates and skippers of small vessels. Here we lay for several days, while Elzevir made such inquiry as he could without waking suspicion as to who were the best dealers in precious stones, and the most able to pay a good price for a valuable jewel. It was lucky too for us that Elzevir could speak the Dutch language, not well indeed, but enough to make himself understood, and to understand others. When I asked him where he had learned it, he told me that he came of Dutch blood on his mother's side, and so got his name as Elzevir, and that he could once speak in Dutch as readily as in English, only that his mother dying when he was yet a boy, he lost something of the facility. As the days passed, the memory of that dreadful morning at Carisbrook became dimmer to me, and my mind more cheerful or composed. I got the diamond back from Elzevir, and had it out many times, both by day and by night, and every time it seemed more brilliant and wonderful than the last.
Often of nights, after all the house was gone to rest, I would lock the door of the room and sit with a candle burning on the table, and turn the diamond over in my hands. It was, as I have said, as big as a pigeon's egg or walnut, delicately cut and faceted all over, perfect and flawless, without speck or stain. And yet, for all it was so clear and colourless, there flew out from the depth of it such flashes and sparkles of red, blue, and green, as made my wonder whence these tints could come. Thus, while I sat and watched it, I would tell Elzevir stories from the Arabian Nights, of wondrous jewels, though I believe there never was a stone that the eagles brought up from the Valley of Diamonds, no, nor any in the Caliph's crown itself that could excel this gem of ours. Sure, that at such times we talked much of the value that was to be put upon the stone, and what was likely to be got for it, but never could settle, not having any experience of such things. Only, I was sure that it must be worth thousands of pounds, and so sat and rubbed my hands, saying that though life was like a game of hazard and our throws had hitherto been bad enough, yet we had made something of this last. But all the while a strange change was coming over us both, and our parts seemed turned about, for whereas a few days before it was I who wished to fling the diamond away, feeling overwrought and heavy-hearted in that awful well who held me from it, now it was he that seemed to set little store by it, and I to whom it was all in all. He seldom cared to look much at the jewel, and one night when I was praising it to him spoke out, Set not thy heart too much upon this stone, it is thine and thine to deal with. Never a penny will I touch that we may get for it. Yet were I thou, and reached great wealth with it, and so came back one day to Moonfleet, I would not spend it all on my own ends but put aside a part to build the poor houses again, as men say Blackbeard meant to do with it. I did not know what made him speak like this, and was not willing, even in fancy, to agree to what he counselled, for with that gem before me, lustrous and all the brighter for lying on a rough deal table, I could only think of the wealth it was to bring to us, and how I would most certainly go back one day to Moonfleet and marry Grace. So I never answered Elzevir, but took the diamond and slipped it back in the silver locket, which still hung round my neck, for that was the safest place for it that we could think of. We spent some days in wandering round the town making inquiries, and learnt that most of the diamond buyers lived near one another in a certain little street, whose name I have forgotten, but that the richest and best known of them was one Christian Aldobrand. He was a Jew by birth, but had lived all his life in The Hague, and besides having bought and sold some of the finest stones, was said to ask few questions, and to trouble little whence stones came, so they were but good. Thus, after much thought and many changes of purpose, we chose this Aldebrand, and settled we would put the matter to the touch with him. We took an evening in late summer for our venture, and came to Aldebrand's house about an hour before sundown. I remember the place well, though I have not seen it for so long, and I would certainly never like to see it again. It was a low house of two stories, standing mat a little from the street, with some wooden palings and a grass plot before it, and a stone-flagged path leading up to the door. The front of it was whitewashed with green shutters, and had a shiny-leaved magnolia trained round about the windows. These jewellers had no shops, though sometimes they set a single necklace or bracelet in a bottom window but put up notices proclaiming their trade. Thus, 
there was over Alderbrand's drawer a board stuck out to say that he bought and sold jewels, and would lend money on diamonds or other valuables. A sturdy serving-man opened the door, and when he heard our business was to sell a jewel, left us in a stone-floored hall or lobby, while he went upstairs to ask whether his master would see us. A few minutes later the stairs creaked, and Alderbrand himself came down. He was a little wizened man with yellow skin and deep wrinkles, not less than seventy years old, and I saw he wore, wore shoes of polished leather, silver-buckled and tilted-heeled to add to his stature. He began to speak to us from the landing, not coming down to the hall, but leaning over the handrail. "'Well, my sons, what would you with me? I hear you have a jewel to sell, but you must know I do not purchase sailors' flotsam. So if tis a moonstone, or cat's eye, or some pin-headed diamonds, keep them to make brooches for your sweethearts, for all the brand buys no toys like that.' He had a thin and squeaky voice, and spoke to us in our own tongue, guessing, no doubt, that we were English from our faces. It was true he handled the language badly enough, yet I was glad he used it, for so I could follow all that was said. "'No toys like that,' he said again, repeating his last words, and Elzevir answered, "'May it please your worship, we are sailors from overseas, and this boy has a diamond that he would sell.' I had the gem in my hand already, and when the old man squeaked peevishly, "'Out with it, then, let's see, let's see!' I reached it out to him. He stretched down over the banisters and took it, holding out his palm hollowed, as if it was some little paltry stone that might otherwise fall and be lost. It nettled me to have him thus underrate our treasure, even though he had never seen it, and so I plumped it down into his hand, as if it were as big as a pumpkin. Now the hall was a dim place, being lit only by a half-circle of glass over the door, and so I could not see very well and in reaching down he brought his head near mine, and I could swear his face changed when he felt the size of the stone in his hand, and turned from impatience and contempt to wonder and delight. He took the jewel quickly from his palm, and held it up between finger and thumb, and when he spoke again his voice was changed as well as his face, and had lost most of the sharp impatience. "'There is not light enough to see in this dark place. Follow me.' and he turned back and went upstairs rapidly, holding the stone in his hand, and we, close at his heels, being anxious not to lose sight of him, now that he had our diamond, for all he was so rich and well-known a man. Thus we came to another landing, and there he flung open the door of a room which looked out west, and had the light of the setting sun streaming in full flood through the window. The change from the dimness of the stairs to this level red blaze was so quick, but for a minute I could make out nothing but turning my back to the window saw presently that the room was panelled all out through with painted wood, with a bed let into the wall on one side and shelves round the others, on which were many small coffers and strong boxes of iron. The jeweller was sitting at a table with his face to the sun, holding the diamond up against the light and gazing into it closely, that I could so I could see every working of his face. The hard and cunning look that had come back to it, and he turned suddenly upon me and asked quite sharply, "'What is your name, boy? Whence do you come?' Now I was not used to walk under false names, and he took me unawares, so I must needs blurt out, "'My name is John Trenchard, sir, and I come from Moonfleet in Dorset.' A second later I could have bitten off my tongue for having said as much, and saw Elzevir frowning at me to make me hold my peace. 
It was too late, then, for the merchant was writing down my answer in a little parchment ledger. And though it would seem to most but a little thing that he should thus take down my name and birthplace, and only vexed us at the time, because we would not have known it at all whence we came, yet in the overrulings of Providence it was ordered that this note in Mr. Alderbrand's book should hereafter change the issue of my life. "'From Moonfleet in Dorset,' he repeated to himself as he finished writing my answer. "'And how did John Trenchard come by this?' And he tapped the diamond as it lay on the table before him. Then Elzevir broke in quickly, fearing no doubt lest I should be betrayed into saying more. "'Nay, sir, we are not come to play at questions and answers, but to know whether your worship will buy this diamond and at what price.' We have no time to tell long histories, and so I must only say that we are English sailors, and that the stone is fairly come by. And he let his fingers play with the diamond on the table, as if he feared it might slip away from him. Softly, softly, said the old man, all stones are fairly come by, but had you told me whence you got this, I might have spelled myself some tedious tests, which now I must crave pardon for making. He opened a cupboard in the panelling, and took out from it a little pair of scales, some crystals, a black stone, and a bottle full of green liquid. Then he sat down again, drew the diamond gently from Elzevir's fingers, which were loath to part with it, and began using his scales, balancing the diamond carefully, now against a crystal, now against some small brass weights. I stood with my back to the sunset, watching the red light fall upon this old man as he weighed the diamond rubbed it on the blackstone, or let fall on it a drop of the liquor, and so could see the wonder and emotion fade from his face, and only hard craftiness left in it. I watched him meddling till I could bear to watch no longer, feeling a fierce, feverish suspense as to what he might say, and my pulse beating so quick that I could scarce stand still. For was not the decisive moment very nigh when we should know from these parched-up lips the value of the jewel, and whether it was worth risking life for, whether the fabric of our hopes was built on shore foundation or on slippery sand? So I turned my back on the diamond merchant, and looked out of the window, waiting all the while to catch the slightest word that might come from his lips. I found then, and at other times, that in such moments, though the mind be occupied entirely by one overwhelming thought, Yet the eyes take in, as it were unwittingly, all that lies before them, so that we can afterwards recall a face or landscape of which at the time we took no note. Thus it was with me that night, for though I was thinking of nothing but the duel, yet I noted everything that could be seen through the window, and the recollection was of use to me later on. The window was made in the French style, reaching down to the floor, and opening like a door with two leaves. It led on to a little balcony, and now stood open, for the day was still very hot, and on the wall below was trained a pear-tree which was half embowered the balcony with its green leaves. The blinds inside and heavy shutters shod with iron on the outer wall, and there were besides strong bolts and sockets from which ran certain wires, whose use I did not know. Below the balcony was a square garden-plot, shut in with a brick wall, and kept very neat and trim. There were hollyhocks round the walls, and many-coloured poppies, with many other shrubs and flowers. My eyes fell on one especially, a tall, red-blossomed, rushy kind of flower, that I had never seen before, and that seemed, indeed, to be something out of the common, 
for it stood in the middle of a little earth plot, and had the whole bed nearly to itself. I was looking at this flat, thinking of it, but wondering all the while whether Mr. Alderbrand would say the diamond was worth ten thousand pounds, or fifty, or a hundred thousand, when I heard him speaking, and turned round quick. "'My sons, and you especially, son John,' he said, and turned to me, "'this stone that you have brought to me is no stone at all, but glass, or rather paste, for so we call it.' Not but what it is good paste, and perhaps the best that I have seen, and so I had to try it to make sure. Against high chemic trysts no sham can stand. And first, it is too light in weight, and second, when rubbed on this basanos or blackstone, traces no line of white as any diamond must. But third and last, I have tried it with a hermeneutic proof, and dipped it in this most costly lembic, and the liquor remains pure green and clear, not turbid orange a diamond leaves it. As he spoke, the room spun round, and I felt the sickness and heart-sinking that comes with the sudden destruction of long-cherished hope. So it was all a sham, a bit of glass for which we had risked our lives. Blackbeard had only mocked us even in his death, and from which men we were become the poorest outcasts and all the other bright fancies that had been built on this worthless thing fell down at once like a house of cards. There was no money now with which to go back rich to Moonfleet, no money to cloak past offences, no money to marry Grace. And with that I gave a sigh, and my knees failing should have fallen had not Elzevir held me. "'Nay, son John,' squeaked the old man, seeing I was so put about, "'take it not so hardly.' "'For though this is but paste, I say not it is worthless. "'It is fine work, as ever I have seen, "'and I will offer you ten silver crowns for it, "'which is a goodly sum for a sailor-lad to have in hand, "'and more than all the other buyers in this town would bid you for it.' "'Tush, tush!' cried Elzevir, "'and I could hear the bitterness and disappointment in his voice, "'however much he tried to hide it. "'We are not come to beg for silver crowns, so keep them in your purse.' "'And the devil take this shining sham! "'We are well good of it. "'There is a curse upon the thing!' And "'With that he caught up the stone "'and flung it away out of the window in his anger.'" End of chapter 16, part 1 Recording by Simon Evers